What's up, Biking Rear fans? If you've ever dreamed of doing a big, multi-week bikepacking trip, this episode is for you. After six years of planning, routing, and mapping, the eight-segment, 5,500-ish mile Eastern Divide bikepacking route is mostly done. But before the GPX tracks were even official, or finished, my friend and ultra-distance cyclist Eddie O'Day strapped bags to his bike and set out to be the first person to ride it. In this interview, he shares stories from the trip, including how he planned for it, the challenges that came up throughout it, and the gear he used to successfully complete 6,000 miles and more than 160,000 feet of elevation. This came over gravel roads, rail trails, and single track, from the easternmost tip of Northern Canada to the southernmost tip of Key West, Florida, all to raise money for the Georgia Cycling Association, a group he co-founded. We talk about the lessons he learned along the way and how it changed him as a rider and a person. Please welcome Eddie O'Day. Eddie, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. So you're, uh, you look rested. Getting there. <laughs> how long have you been home since the, the end of your grand tour? Well, I finished riding a week ago yesterday and um, actually home here in Birmingham just, uh, just yesterday afternoon. Nice. How long did it take you to actually feel like human again? <laughs> I'll let you know when I get there. <laughs> right on. Did you have somebody meet you in Key West to bring you home or how'd you get home? Um, I had a couple of friends that met me yeah, at the finish line and we hung out there in Key West for a couple of days. And then uh, I flew out of there to Atlanta and then off to North Georgia to uh, sit and decompress in a cabin for another several days before finally coming back out to civilization. Right on. Cool. I, I feel like we're kind of starting at the finish here, but we'll get to the rest of the story. But I'm curious, like, how do you decompress from something like that? Like, is it hard sort of readjusting into the normal daily flow? Because you were on the bike for what, a month and a half ish? Uh, two and a half. And then, oh, wow. And if you bookend it with, you know, a week in, in Newfoundland ahead of time and, and a week afterwards, yeah, it's three months of no real life. So yeah, that, there's no script because <laughs> you know, I've never been able to do that before and just disappear for that long and figure out how to come back. And, and it's everything from figuring out like where my clothes are to <laughs> you know, the, what happened to my charging cable next to my bed that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, just, I don't know, a million little things to, to start getting back into all the routines. Yeah. How is, uh, like, I mean, how did you even get away for that long? Like, what do you, you know, for, for the background, you and I have been friends for a very long time. You know, you used to race on my little energy drink team and then, you know, you raced for Topeak Ergon crew for a little while. And so you've been in the sport for a long time. I've known you for geez, 20 something years now, but I don't know actually what you do day to day now. Like <laughs> what do you do and how in the world did you get three months off? So I am full-time in my, my bike fitting business. And uh, I'm a contractor with a couple of shops, Free Flight Bicycles in Atlanta and Bob's Bicycles in Homewood, Alabama. So I can dictate my own schedule. And, uh, and of course, I let them know, you know, almost a year and a half in advance that this was going to be a thing. I didn't know it was going to be two and a half months. I thought it was going to be more like a month and a half. But uh, <laughs> once I got into it, there was also no quitting it. You know, it's uh, so that's kind of how I at least... And the career-wise was able to exit. I had set up this whole contract thing kind of with one of these big rides uh, in the back of my head as I was doing it. So I've been working towards this for a couple of years. And then I didn't know exactly what that ride was going to be yet, but just sort of slowly getting my life to where I could go do something like this. 
That's awesome, man. I think that's a kind of a bucket list thing for everybody to do, whether it's, whether or not it's the Eastern Dubai sure. trail or, or whatever, but right. Like just bust out and just say, screw it and go ride for however long, you know, months is awesome. All right. So let's talk about the route and getting started preparing and all that stuff. So it's the Eastern divide bikepacking route. Correct. Starts in what? New Finland. Yeah. Right? So Cape Spear, the easternmost point of North America, like where all the telegraph lines go off to, to the UK there down to uh, Key West. So the southernmost point of the continental United States. Nice. Does it actually run through, once you get into the U.S. anyway, like every eastern border state, or does it somehow skip some? Like, does it go inland at all, or are you really running coastal? Uh, no, very much inland through, I mean, kind of picture the Appalachian Trail, and it's going to cross over that, I don't know how many hundred times, but uh, it follows that the Appalachian Mountains. So once I kind of come in from the coast on in New Brunswick, Canada, um, it heads out towards into Maine, towards Katahdin, and really just starts paralleling that Appalachian Trail all the way down through Georgia, actually cuts over into Alabama, into the panhandle of Florida, and then again, paralleling the Florida Trail, which is kind of an extension of the AT, follows that all the way down. Awesome. So New Brunswick, you know, we were up there, at, you know, my family and I went on a road trip up that way this summer, and it's gorgeous, like Bay of Fundy and all that was Let's just talk Canada for a minute. What was the highlights for you of, of that segment? So, yeah, that coastline in like around St. John's and Cape Spear, just that whole start area. I'd love to go back and explore more of that. That was really pretty, really rugged. Now, you know, around August 1st, the weather's perfect. I can only imagine, you know, what that might be in February, nor would I want to be there either. But <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> I've, I've been there in December and it's, it's so cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it shows in the landscape, you know, the, the trees are stunted and you can just tell how windswept everything is. But yeah, it's just, it's almost a, you know, it is very much a foreign landscape, even though it's, you know, on the same continent. And uh, that was pretty cool to be able to ride through. The high point in, in Newfoundland itself is an area called the Gaff Topsail. And just, I pushed through uh, on a third night or something. The, the days of the trip kind of blend together in some ways, but pushed through late into a, a late night ride and set up my tent in the dark and wake up to this completely different landscape than, uh, than what I had started in. And you know, the trees are very sparse and lots of exposed rock and you know, these bogs and whatnot. And that's always a fun part of these trips is just to wake up in some place. You just had no idea, right? It was dark and, and there's no lights around and then you wake up and, and take in the landscape as I step out of my tent. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. What was the I, the timing of it? Yeah, August is really nice up there. It's funny, man. Like, I feel like we may have actually like driven past you and not even known that was you <laughs> or something because we were there at the same time Okay, um, along those roads. But uh, was that a strategic plan to start in August? Because then by the time you make your way further south and into Florida, you're into September and October and it's getting yeah. a little bit cooler. And so, I mean, to back up further, n nobody's done the route, had done the route. So I had no, no script to follow from anybody else and for good or bad, you know, I don't know what other people's mistakes would have been, you know, looking at some of the other bigger routes like Tour Divide or something like that. So it was just a guess. And I kind of figured there's two ways to go. I can start in Florida and go north, maybe start somewhere around April 1st ish and go north and try to get you know, the, the challenge there is getting into Canada 
after the snow melt and even after the snow melt you got to kind of wait for all that moisture to go away because it's just mud you know this is a mostly off-road route so it's you know mud's going to be a really big deal and then just generally dealing with a wet spring all the way along didn't sound that great so the other option was at least in my mind was what i did which was start august 1st in newfoundland and start working my way south the challenges there is you know one if it takes too long it's going to be cold and i may or may not have the gear for that i started pretty light and the other bit is hurricanes you know and trying to get down and through all the way through florida and there's i don't know 1400 miles in florida to get through and running the gauntlet of hurricane season in september october my initial thinking was, and the original advertised route was 5,000 plus miles. I didn't realize that plus was going to be another 1,000 miles. <laughs> so I was thinking, you know, all right, 100, 125 miles a day. I could be down, you know, mid-September, finish. It's still going to be hot down in Florida, but I could also adjust my strategy and ride more at night and have a longer stops in the afternoon or something and, and work around that. But uh, the reality didn't come to be that. <laughs> It was so slow getting out of Canada that I was already a week behind by the time I, I got through the first, whatever it was, 1,500 miles. Man, I, I have so many questions about your gear, but I want to kind of save the gear for the end of this and just really geek out on some of the details because I'm sure that's what a lot of people are wondering is like, what do you pack for something like this? <laughs> Did you camp every night or were there some hotel nights? In the beginning, I'd say I camped maybe every other night. In the beginning, I'd say the first month or so. And that's a typical strategy for me on, on trips like this is that you know, at least every other night I can get a shower, wash clothes, and try to keep you know, body and skin taken care of and just have some of those kind of feeling like human moments where you can just sit and be clean for, for a little while. But also sometimes logistically, you just can't get to a place that has things that are, or a hotel that's available. And something I learned very quickly is that that time of year, everything is super busy in Canada. And then add on top of it, you know, everybody's coming out of COVID. And there's a thing in, in Newfoundland called coming home days. And it's almost like a, a family reunion kind of thing, but it's the whole town does it. And they hadn't been able to do it for three years. And now every town is doing it. And there's, there's not many big towns in Newfoundland. So every place that has some hotels is just completely full so you get to a Friday or Saturday night, and if you haven't booked ahead, sometimes months in advance, there's no chance. That was a thing all the way through Canada, not just Newfoundland, but it's just a very busy time of year up there. Yeah. I wonder if that's like something too, like you don't even think about that ahead of time because like who knows what the customs are in Canada, right? Unless you live in Canada. Yeah. I just, I had never heard of that, number one, the coming home days part. But then, uh, yeah, just not, I knew Newfoundland would be kind of tough. My brother's done a, a bunch of work up there and kind of gave me heads up on that as far as being able to book hotels and booking the ferry to get off the island and that kind of thing, which is another logistical thing that came up is I had a Thursday evening ferry ride. So you got to take a ferry from Port of Basque to Sydney, uh, Nova Scotia. It's like a seven hour boat ride. It's, you know, it's a pretty significant logistical hurdle. So I bumped that to Friday because I just wasn't covering the ground as, as well as I thought I could. And then it got to be Friday, and I was like, oh. I called them up. I was like, hey, can I push this to Saturday? Like, no. Monday is your best, your next chance. There's, there's no room for you. And so what I ended up doing was booking the Monday and keeping the Friday and trying to make that Friday. 
So it was basically, a, you know, a, what it was, a hundred mile time trial to get to Port of Basque on time. And, um, I didn't make it ultimately <laughs> Got about 35 miles out and booked what I'm pretty sure is the last Airbnb in Port of Basque for the weekend. So I ended up in like a three bedroom house by myself because that was the only thing. All the hotels were booked again, just running into weekend traffic in Canada. So yeah, that was, like I said, that just popped up every weekend. And usually by the weekend comes, I've forgotten, you know, and so I'm not booking ahead and then I get to a town and I'm so disappointed because I wanted a shower and a bed and there's nothing available. Huh. It's, yeah, I guess it's, it's pretty hard to book ahead too when you don't know yeah. when you're going to get there, right? Because like you said, you're, you're kind of running behind. So what's like, what was the thing slowing you down? Was it weather? Was it trail conditions, road conditions, just the pure mileage of it? A lot of it is that it's in Canada, a lot of it's either old rail to trail or just ATV slash snowmobile trail. And they don't care how chunky that that is. They have a throttle and they can they can just roll through it. Um or it's snowed over and they can take their snowmobile across it. But we're talking like two fist size chunks of rock. And so on paper, like Newfoundland was all rail to trail. So in my head I'm thinking, oh super easy grades and you know, sure it's whatever, 560 miles, but that shouldn't be a problem doing in, in four days. But the reality was it's a 1% grade climb. You get to the top of that climb and there's no coasting down the other side because it's 1% grade with super chunky rock that isn't going to carry fast. So it also meaning you don't get a break. It might as well just be super flat terrain. There's no, no break from pedal. There's no coasting. And then get into Nova Scotia and yeah, it was weather. You get into those maritime areas of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and the weather comes through quickly and significant changes. So it could be super wet and or the wind changes on you. And then as I was leaving Newfoundland, GI issues began, which I didn't have any quantitative testing to find out exactly what it was, but I'm pretty sure it was some bad filtered water of not being able to get hotels actually and in the town of Cornerbrook and I had to camp out and uh, filtered some water that night and used that water overnight and into the next day. And three days later, we'll just say uh, GI distress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can leave it at that. So yeah. was it, do you think there was like a, a equipment failure, like the filter wasn't doing its job or just it got con- like a little drop got contaminated? It's impossible to say. I had had that filter for a while, but, in, you know, in thinking back on all the things and all the things that are possible, it could, it could be as simple as I just didn't rinse out that filter very well from a previous use and put it away and pick it up four months later. And, and all of a sudden I'm going to have some issues. So there's no way to, no way to say, and I don't want to fault any of the equipment. It could just have easily been a user error or yeah, I got a little bit of the, the creek water into my, my drinking bottle and that's all it takes. You know, yeah. there's beavers everywhere up there. There's not a not a waterway up there that doesn't have some beavers in it. And you know, beavers do what animals do in in the place they live, and uh, that that flows downstream. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. That ended up costing me a day in a hotel in a hospital. Oh, geez. So is that bad? Yeah. So after I don't know four or five days of that, which would basically you know have some breakfast in the morning, and then I'd kind of have to linger around the hotel for a few hours, kind of waiting for the aftermath to come through and then load up on a modium and then go ride a hundred some miles and get to the next hotel and, and hope for the best. Um, but after Jeez. several days of that, I was turns out significantly dehydrated and, uh, still 
battling whatever was going on inside of me. Um, so I did end up in the hospital for the day and they pumped three liters of fluid into me. It's kind of funny story there that uh, the nurse is like, so you're going to give you some IV. And uh, I was like, I feel okay. Other than, you know, I can't really leave a place with a bathroom at the moment. She's like, we're just going to do that, you know, just to be safe. And, uh, and she's trying to put the IV, the catheter into my arm and she's blowing through my vein, which is usually a sign of dehydration. Hmm. And then she popped the tourniquet that was further up my arm to reset and start her process over or maybe move to the other arm. And that change in blood pressure was enough to uh, send me over the edge. And I'm st- like, not quite passed out. I could still hear, but I couldn't move. My eyes are rolled back in my head. And all of a sudden, oh, I got the, the whole staff in the room with me. Okay, maybe I am a little dehydrated. And I'll just go ahead and do whatever you guys are going to tell me to do. And uh, so yeah, they pumped a bunch of fluid into me and got me some antibiotics and asked me to take some days off. Did you? Days off of what? <laughs> <laughs> no, I went back at it the next day and did a like 95 miles. <laughs> Gee, I mean, only 95 miles, right? Yeah, I took it. It easy. was an easy day. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, man. So what, What like, it, you, not exact numbers unless you actually know, but just like your general recollection of it, like what percentage is pavement versus like gravel road, rail trail, single track? Um, I don't know that I can get that granular, but... Uh... I mean, pavement to dirt would be, I'd say it's 65 to 70% dirt. Nice. It's not a lot of single track, but it's very memorable when it is. And it sort of comes down to, you know, how long did it really take? The distances, if you're doing it, you know, sort of in mileage, single track never sounds that significant. But time-wise, you know, the pavement goes by so much faster and rail to trail goes so much faster. And then you get into this pavement and you're just kind of crawling along. So it feels like there's a lot more single track and, and rugged roads than the mileage would suggest. Right. Any known trails that people might recognize that you get to hop on or is it just kind of little connector bits here and there? Um, there's several rail trails that would stand out like the Virginia creeper trail and the Greenbrier trail right. bits and pieces of the Pinhoti trail in Alabama, Florida trail in Florida. So yeah, there is, there's some recognizable pieces. The route creators did a pretty good job of not just completely copy and pasting other routes into this and trying to find some some things that were different and unique to that that particular route, which was pretty cool. Nice. Yeah, I was looking through bikepacking.com's website, which it sounds like they were sort of the driving force behind putting this together and Mm-hmm. And, you know, finding the routes and the connectors and everything else and making this a reality, which is awesome. Kudos to them. It looks like the website needs a little bit of update. Like it still reads as though, it's, you know, it's still a work in progress. You still need volunteers to scope some sections. So is what you did like the official final version or is how much of a work in progress is this still? Um, so I had hoped it would be the final version by the time I got there. The reality was that. Because um, now you have to do it again, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe next week. I was scouting Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, which I would never suggest scouting and through riding to anybody. They are completely different animals and should never be done at the same time. So that was a very, one very unknown beta wise section to me. And it's, I think it ended up being around 700 ish, uh, maybe 750 miles. So not an insignificant chunk of it. And so that stuff that you scout, will that now become part of the official route or at least some of it? No, there's some big chunks that were awful. 
um, that nobody should ever ride. And <laughs> I started to not even want to hear my own complaining through that part. It was, it was <laughs> some really awful bits. So there was some significant changes, especially in Nova Scotia. After I went up, Logan from bikepacking did his own scouting trip. And it was based on my feedback and getting back out there and looking around. And I might be confusing the, the Nova Scotia and the New Brunswick big, but getting some local connections that I had made and being able to take some of that feedback. And ultimately, he has published a section through there. And I'd say just in long term, I would never expect this route to be exactly what it is today. It's too long of a route. And the East, it's, it was something, say, like Tour Divide, that's very remote comparatively. So the chances of that route having to change significantly on a more permanent basis is probably less of a chance of that. Where here on the East, you know, some of the dirt roads are going to get paved over eventually. It's just going to happen. And there's so many little links and turns and little roads that are used here and there that the chances for you know bridges to get washed out or whatever, things like that would change the route is definitely going to be more, it's going to be more dynamic, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of cool, but I'm sure it's going to be a nightmare for keeping a, a route updated here, there, or finding alternates and stuff. What did you start with in terms of an actual route? Like, did you have like a GPX file that you had? with some holes in it and then you had to figure that out when you were scouting or yes i guess the full backstory was i was given access to a ride with gps account um, that seemed to be the collection point of all of these route creators and i won't run through the list because i'll miss people so there's there was a lot of people involved but it seemed to be sort of a, a central depository for all these routes and so i was given access to that probably december january so I started going through and kind of creating my own beta for all of these sections. So fast forward to you know end of July and I'm heading up to Newfoundland. I have a route for Newfoundland. Um, that one's pretty well established and been around for a while, but I have nothing for Nova Scotia or New Brunswick. You know, so I, I basically have five days and then I have this massive gap and then I have what I thought was the rest of the route. What I find maybe in that week right before I left is that what's in that account I've been looking at for the nine months leading up to it is three or four year old data. And they didn't actually use any of that. All of the stuff that's new and updated was in some other account. And I never saw that. I didn't know that. So that would play out through the whole route. I mean, when I got to New York, coming out of Vermont into New York, I thought I was getting into a section where I'd have fresh beta and I'm sitting there on the side of the road, eating a sub, kind of excited because now I'm into parts where I'll have beta and I can just look through my notes and know what's coming. And I am 60 miles south of my starting point of where my notes are, where, where I actually am. Oh, and of course, I have some, some words that I yell into the wind and then go about doing what I've been doing, which is pull up Google and start looking what's coming and start you know making notes on the fly. I feel like I just went off on a tangent and I forget where this question starts. No, no, no. Yeah, no, that was good. I was wondering like how you got the info because I'm looking at their site now and it's, you can download GPX files of of each yeah. of the segments. There's like eight distinct segments that are, you know, hundreds to a thousand plus miles in distance. I think as I landed in Newfoundland, Logan is, you know, texting me new GPX routes for Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. And even as I got, I think as I was leaving um, Newfoundland, because I did have a couple of days of sitting there, he's texting me updated versions that he had you know, gotten some information from one of the locals and made some changes. And so 
I'm just constantly updating my, my files on the fly, um, right. at least through that part. After that, Maine was still a bit of an unknown, but one of the, uh, I don't know, the ambassador route creator parts, uh, persons in that particular section had gotten out um, a few days ahead of me and rode that part. So it was scouted and it was definitely a change from Nova Scotia and Brunswick where I'm totally running blind and I have no information about what's coming. And I'd be riding along and it's, you know, whatever, 10 o'clock at night. And my route says, take a left on this road. And I'm staring at trees. There's nothing, (laughs) that road doesn't exist. And so I find my way around and I come around the other side and I see where they're actually building this road. You know, they got heavy equipment in there. And so that road didn't exist yet, but it's 10 o'clock at night and I'm 90 miles in and I really just want to get to my hotel and be done with this day because throw in GI issues on top of all of that. Anyways, to get to Maine was, was a lot more just mentally less taxing. I didn't have to be nearly as resourceful. I could just ride my bike for a little while. Right. Yeah, that's probably quite refreshing. Let's talk gear for a minute. So you rode a Rodeo Labs flanimal as the bike, right? Correct. And you had some Redshift cockpit stuff, presumably to help eat up some bumps and make it more comfortable. Mm-hmm. What was the rest of the setup? So rock ice bags all the way around. So they did a custom frame bag for me, and then I used their their stock handlebar mounts, the cockpit feed bags and top tube bag, and their saddle bag. And they have a little harness for the saddle bag, which I really like that thing. Uh, it just keeps the bag super stable. And that usually comes up in some of the older bags that I've run where you get out of the saddle and it that bag's kind of wagging around. And then as much weight as I have on the bike, it affects the handling. So you can't just get out of the saddle and kind of get after it. But with theirs, you, you absolutely can, which is really awesome. Cool. What was the total weight of your bike fully loaded? Did you weigh it or did you just not want to know? It's around, I'd say low 50s. Okay. It just depends on how much food I have, you know, how long ago I'd gotten some resupply. I used a lot of torque nutrition. And so I would get, pick up bags that I had sent to myself, you know, and I have these quart size freezer bags, maybe two or three of those, you know, so you put those in the frame bag and that's a couple of pounds. And depending on how much water I had and how many grilled cheese and bacon sandwiches I had stuffed in there, it can change pretty significantly. But yeah, I'd say somewhere around from 45 pounds up to 55 pounds, just depending on how much food I had on me. Right on. And so was the bulk of that stuff that you had either like camping equipment or food, like how many changes of clothes or spare clothes or whatever did you bring? So I started off with my kit. That was it. And when I was, uh, I had that free time at, in Port of Basque in Newfoundland, I went to a thrift store and found a, like a pair of gym shorts and a, and a tank top. So that became my, my sleeping kit. So I didn't have to sit around for three days and in my kit. And that was it. I picked up some new shorts in Jersey, went through several pairs of socks along the way, but I didn't have an extra change of shorts or anything like that. Huh. What about rain kit? Like, were you worried about that or just whatever? So, yeah. So, you know, I had shorts in Jersey, a long sleeve Jersey, a wind vest, knee warmers, a couple different pairs of gloves, you know, just for, for colder temperatures, two pairs of socks, one set that I mostly tried to keep just for sleeping with, keep them dry and clean, and then a, a rain pants and a jacket. All right. And then do you have like a, a tent, sleeping pad, sleeping bag? Yeah. So I had a just a single pole 
tent, a Z pack. So it's got the like the bug liner, which absolutely necessary up there. The mosquitoes will carry you away. Yeah, one sleeping pad. I use a pillow because I'm a side sleeper. My neck will hate me if I don't. And then um, I didn't have a sleeping bag. I just used. I had a puffy jacket, so it was really cold. It was puffy jacket, rain pants, and you know my dry pair of socks. That was, and I had a silk bag, so like a almost like a sleeping bag liner. Yeah. Because um, also, I think there was maybe two or three nights that I camped that I used all of the cold, you know, puffy jacket and everything. There's some nights like in Florida where I didn't even use the the silk bag. It was too hot. You know, when it starts getting up closer to 70 degrees, you don't need all that stuff. And I only had one night where I was uncomfortably cold, and that was actually in North Carolina. Um, just we got gotten a cold spell coming through, and I was up pretty high, 4,000 feet or so, and couldn't get myself lower where I could be probably, you know, four or five degrees warmer and just had to sleep up high and, and deal with it. But I also had a couple of emergency blankets that I could throw over the top of all of that. It kept me warm. It just keeps all the moisture in, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Those things don't breathe at all. Those little mylar space blankets. <laughs> all right. What, uh, I was curious, like, wheels and tires you rode in, were you tubeless, tubes? The rims were Rodeo Labs 27.5. I had a, a dyno front hub and a DT Swiss 350 rear hub and then some Maxxis tires. I use an Icon 2.2. In the back and a forecaster uh two three five up front so did you go 27.5 just to be able to get really big tires in there just for more like cushion or yeah so you can run i think up to a 50 millimeter 700 on the flanimal but just what i knew about the the georgia section of the route i knew i wanted some cushion and a bigger tire and i'd say that setup was good for probably i don't know 80 to 85 percent of the route and I'm not sure if you're going to find a bike in a setup that, that could do more than that. Yeah, no, that's a pretty good ratio for sure. Yeah, you got long paved road sections where I would have loved to have less tire weight, roll a little faster through that. But also, I mean, going through Snake Creek Gap in the Penhody in Georgia, I mean, it's just so chunky in there. And I would have loved to have a full suspension mountain bike. To have a bike that could do everything out there is just doesn't really exist. Yeah. What about lights and electronics and you know like what else did you bring so i had the have the dyno hub and i use a k light light and usb power converter so that runs up to the k light light up on the front so i got a handlebar light there and then they have a whole cable harness and that splits off to a usb charger in the back end is that the brand k light or yeah k light they're out of um australia okay i was introduced to them Six or seven years ago, I was getting ready to do Tour Divide, and it was pretty bomb-proof through that. And uh, I know there's some other other brands out there, but I just start running out of time of testing things. So if something works, I just move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's one less thing to think about and worry about, right? Yeah. And they had come out with a rear light that runs off of their system. So I added that. So I didn't have to worry about having to charge at least a handlebar light and a rear light throughout the whole thing I didn't, or find a new batteries or whatnot. I actually ended up with nothing that I had to pick up batteries for, which was really nice. Were you uh, navigating off your phone or some kind of GPS computer? Kind of back and forth between, so I have a, a Garmin Edge 1040 Solar, which is kind of their latest and greatest, if you want to know. Which you shouldn't have to charge, so that would be nice, in theory. They advertised 100 hours, I'd say, you know, and then I knew even if I got half of that, that'd be fine. Right. I could probably get about 
three full days out of it. But with that, so from the dyno, I can charge a cache battery. And that cache battery would charge, say, my phone maybe three or four times. So that's getting you know replenished throughout the day. And then I can use that to top off my phone or my um, GPS or the, I had a Garmin inReach GPS transponder, which is how you could track me and or I can send out my SOS if I needed to. I can text through that as well through the satellite if I needed to. Yeah, that's pretty much all the electronics. Um, oh, shifting. I have the SRAM AXS and I carried four batteries with me. Would you just charge that stuff at the hotels when you stop then? or Yeah, so basically I could use that cash battery to kind of keep everything topped off you know, from day to day. And I'd say I could probably push it three or four days um, without having to get to a wall outlet somewhere. And then, yeah, as soon as I got to a hotel, that's the first thing I was doing was just plug everything in. Right. I only had one drive, the AXS charger, so I might have to cycle through a couple of batteries if I had been out for a few days. But uh, that, you know, just topping everything off every at least every other day was really the kind of my goal. That just meant I didn't have to deal with either a bigger cash battery or just worrying about it. So were you running one by then? Uh, yeah. Okay. And no dropper. So I guess just one, you're only using like one a- access battery at a time for the rear derailleur then? Correct. Yeah. I, I looked into a dropper. I was looking at the Fox has a very short travel one. The problem is my legs are so short that if I drop it, the saddlebag is going to hit the tire. Hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. It's interesting with the access. Cause like, I always think that people who are going on multi-day stuff, they want it like as bomb proof old school as possible, you know, which to me would be obviously cable actuated was there ever and not just with the access or anything but like anything any regrets with what you brought or anything you wish you'd brought differently or change or didn't bring or stuff you forgot to bring um <laughs> I mean, as rug as it was in canada i was kind of kicking myself for not going with a mountain bike and going more of a you know the gravel adventure bike after that i was pretty happy with with the setup the axs worked out great i think having all those batteries is is pretty key. They're small and they're lightweight, so it's really not a big penalty there. The upside of it is that like I did change my rear derailleur, crashed into it, and, and I had a spare nearby, so I don't have to worry about recabling anything. You know, getting uh, that's a good point. way smoother. I don't have to pull all the bags off to get to where the cables route through. So all of that just went so much easier and smoother. So, you know, they replaced the shifter batteries and even though they're not dead, just because so all that worked out really well. No, I don't think there's anything I really should have brought that I didn't. I think you know, logistically I was running slower. That that created some some challenges. And I I should have planned a little better as far as having like new pairs of shorts along the way. So I was kind of scrambling to make that happen. You know, because as shorts wear out, then my skin wears out, and then all the bad things start to happen. But uh <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, with were there bike shops along the way with reasonable frequency? I don't know what would constitute reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's some sections where it's, you know, five, six, 700 miles and you're not going to no. hit a bike shop. So at least not right on route. I mean, you can, you know, cut over to another town here or there and make it happen. Right. And there's only one time where I had to catch a ride. And that was when I was first getting into Maine and I caught a ride down towards Bangor and, and to get to a bike shop to do some work on my brakes, which were, that was kind of the one thing was the, the brakes. That was kind of a constant issue throughout the ride. How so? Initially I let them wear down a lot, 
partially because there was no bike shop to go to. I mean, there wasn't one until, I guess there was probably one in Moncton, but Fredericton was where I ended up stopping. And the paths were pretty much non-existent at that point. And so the pistons would push in a little too far. So you put fresh pads in there and they don't come back out enough. And so they're dragging. And I didn't really notice it at first. And I don't know exactly. I'm not a brake engineer, so I couldn't explain what was going on. But it just felt like they were dragging more and more over the next 100 miles or so. And so I'm pushing into Maine and it just feels like like I'm riding around with my brakes on. And that was not fun at all. I imagine that's a real uh, mind killer. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got a headwind on top of it, which is always fun. And then the brakes are dragging and it's just, yeah. Anyways, so I caught a ride, got to the bike shop, let a little pressure off, get back out there and start riding. Fast forward to the next day. Now the brakes feel like they're totally fading, like I don't have enough pressure on them. So I'm just kind of back and forth. What I ultimately figured out is just don't let the brake pads wear out that part. Yeah, it's a good strategy. When you say pressure off, like, did you just let a little bit of fluid out to kind of open things back up or? Initially, and then later I had to get them, I got into the Carabasset area. Anyway, there's a ski resort I keep forgetting the name of. And I had to get the brakes bled again. And I just wasted a lot of time. So how many total pair of brake pads did you go through? Oh, at least 10. Wow. Dang. As I got into the heavy climbing and also descending from like West Virginia through into Georgia, it would be four to five days and I'd need a new set of brake pads. I mean, I guess the bike's heavy, right? So and, yeah, you know, exactly. that's, that's a lot of extra stopping it has to do. Exactly. And so it's, you know, in Florida went by without a hitch, right? Cause there is no hard descending You're not doing a lot of hard braking <laughs> cause you're just not going that fast. Your speeds are more steady where you get into the mountains and you're doing these, you know, 40 plus mile an hour descents on a 50 pound bike. and on terrain that I don't know, I don't know what turns are coming up. So sometimes you're over braking. <laughs> it's not like your your backyard trail that you know so well, and you you always know what to be doing at the time. I'm running through most of this blind, so yeah, I, I burn through a lot, and then throw throw some rain and weather on top of it, and they'll be that much faster. And you're running a road group, so you're working with tiny little two piston calipers and small brake pads and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I could have used a dual piston mountain bike brake on there. I just, I'm sure somebody can figure out how to make that happen. Yeah. Hope does it. I mean, hope makes four piston calipers for road groups, which is pretty cool. I haven't tried them, but they look awesome. Yeah. Maybe I should look at this bike rumor website. Um, (laughs) I hear it's pretty good. (laughs) Lots of cool stuff on there. A lot of it came down to, you know, in, in May, June of this year, 2022, components were so hard to come by. And I was still, I had not even done an overnight trip on this bike because I couldn't get the parts together to have a complete bike until I left. I had built it up and used it on bound, but then I completely changed the setup of the bike, different wheel set, and then got it ready for this trip. And I was like, mm, I don't have time to go out. <laughs> yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dang. That's awesome. What, all right, I got a few kind of like top level questions. Uh, how much did this whole trip cost you? Oh, <laughs> ballpark north of $20,000. Holy cow. What were, I mean, flights, I guess, probably some big ticket items. A new rear derailleur would be a big ticket item. Yeah. So just having all the components and drivetrains ahead of time, because I didn't know what shops were going to have or nor exactly what I'd need. But a majority of that is, is really food and hotels. And towards, like I said, maybe the first month I was camping every other night 
to where it was like I was camping once a week towards the latter part. I was just, I would go do a 130 mile day to get to a hotel rather than do, you know, something a little less just to camp near town because I would sleep so much better in a hotel and be rested and I could do another big day. So that got expensive. And, um, you know, flights on either end of it, shipping for various things that I end up needing halfway through and getting that and paying the expedited shipping to get it there. So, you know, it was there a day or two before I was there. So I'd be sure to get it and not spend all the money on shipping for it to show up a day after. Yeah, that, I mean, it adds up because these are, trips are not cheap. Yeah. What, did you have a budget beforehand? Like, what did you think it was going to cost? It, it's in line with what my budget was. Okay. Interesting. All right. I, I feel like I would have totally under budgeted that and hoped for the best and then been like, holy shit. It absolutely can be done cheaper. This is not the way I went about it is definitely not sort of the, the dirt bag bike packing way you could one could go about it. You could do a lot more camping, eat a lot cheaper. I've seen people do this at a dollar general stores and do something like tour divide on, on maybe a $5,000 budget, but it's also twice as long as tour divide. It's through a lot of tourist areas. So, you know, food and, and hotels are not cheap. And if, well, I did get the sponsorship to do it. So I'm not going to sleep in the woods every night when I can go get a hotel and be rested. And ultimately I think it, it helps me move faster. Because I am more rested, and I'm, you know, sleep is probably the the number one thing that I can control that that will make my day better the next day. Yeah, it makes sense. I wonder. So, I mean, I know sometimes with me, like I get so overtired or overworked that I don't sleep well. Was that? Did you have that issue, or did you just at some point your body's like, nope, I'm sleeping? It's hard sometimes to get to sleep. I'm all, you know, been running on a, adrenaline and dopamine for you know, 10, 12 hours. And then all of a sudden you got to shut it off and go to right to bed. It doesn't always work out. So I used, uh, some CBD oil, some magnesium and melatonin and that combination usually give me about 20 minutes and yeah, I'm out. And a couple of that, I mean, certainly I'm just tired, but it's getting to that mindset because it's not just like, Hey, I need to go to sleep. I'm thinking about all the things I need to be doing the next day. And, you know, I get into, say, a hotel room and it's got to get all this plugged in and you got to do this and you got to, oh, you got to get your laundry in. Don't forget about getting your laundry over the dryer. And all right, so what are my stops for the next day? Where am I going to find food 30 miles in? Where am I going to find water? And you got to have a plan for that every single day so that when you do leave civilization, you have the things that you need because you don't want to be going backwards ever, but you also don't want to be running out of food and water anywhere because it might be 40 miles to the next place, but if you're bonking 30 miles, that last 10 miles is going to take three times as long. Yeah. It sounds like with you constantly updating your, your, you know, getting new GPX files, getting new routes, new intel from everybody that you probably couldn't have done a whole lot of that well in advance. Like you have to, did you have to look at it each night and say, okay, on Google Maps, I'm following along and I'll go, I'll get here and then here and here's a restaurant and so forth? Most of the time what I would do is into each of those new sections, just the way they have it on bikepacking.com with the eight different sections. That first night or day, however it worked out where I had Wi-Fi, I might sit there for three, four or five hours and just start going through the whole route and have a pretty good outline of where resupply points were and where hotels were, where maybe where a bike shop was. That would just sort of take some of the stress off of me mentally that I knew I had, you know, somewhat of a plan. Where I didn't do that, 
I would be kind of just kind of floundering out there in the woods and not knowing what's coming up. And I might know that there is this one store 30 miles out, but I don't do well. I'm going to go there and then I'm going to figure out the next point. I kind of want to know how my day is going to go. And really, I'd like to know how the next three days are going to go. Roughly, obviously things can change and terrain is harder than you planned or weather does whatever. But I got into the routine of just, I'm going to stop here and use the Wi-Fi, and I might be sitting in a gas station or a restaurant, whatever, for three or four hours, just going through and making notes. Was this, did you do this all on your phone, or did you bring like a tablet or laptop or something with you? All from my phone, yeah. And that, like I said, like that, that starts to play into how well I'm going to sleep, right? Because if I'm all anxious about, I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring <laughs> and where, where I'm going to find food or whatever, then it's a hard to just shut it all off and go to bed and get that eight hours of sleep that I know I need that I'm just going to sit there and keep my phone on and, and keep working on it. So I would try to do those things in the mornings because it would be, I think less interrupting my sleep, but it didn't always work out that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that feeling all too well. What was like big takeaways for you? Like how, how did this ride this experience change you as a person? <laughs> Um, are you still processing? <laughs> still processing that. I'll let you know. I'd say I have, I've learned how to be more resourceful. I thought I was pretty resourceful before, <laughs> but having to do so much of this day to day planning for this route, like on the fly, I had to learn to be more okay with that. And that, that took a big chunk of the ride to figure out sort of what's going to keep me from being anxious about heading off into the woods. Yeah, the last thing I ever want to do is press that SOS button for some stupid thing I did because I didn't plan ahead and I didn't bring enough food or water that, you know, I want to be self-sufficient out there. That's kind of the goal of these things. I don't want to get myself into trouble. So just learning how to do that on the fly and be okay with it and manage that stress. That was a big part of it. More on this ride than I've ever done. And it's not a thing that usually comes up in racing, which is kind of my background, I don't usually just go do these big expedition kind of trips, is being okay accepting help or asking for help from people. The volume of strangers that came out of their way to help me on this trip is is pretty amazing. I and mean, there's no way I could ever come up with a full list of it from, uh, you know, people in the campsite next to me giving me food. I mean, hot dogs and green beans at midnight is such a nice gesture. Yeah. Um, so kind of getting my head out of that racing mindset of more of, you know, how do I utilize what's out here? And it's the kindness of strangers. That was a big piece of it. Um, there's no way I could have finished this ride fully self-contained, which is more how I would have or have done races and, and bigger rides um, in the past. And just, you know, I, I planned so heavily for everything. I didn't really need anybody to help me out. But on this ride, I was at the mercy of, of the route and, and kindness of strangers to get me through and that there's really good people in the world. That's awesome to hear. And I think we forget that with the, the constant bombardment of the news cycle and all the, the crap you read, right. It's like actually getting out of there, getting away from that stuff and talking to people face to face is just really refreshing almost 99% of the time. Yeah. And of course, you know, I'm not listening to the news very much out there, so I'm away from it. But I did run into quite a few people who expressed their fears, I guess, for me and the worry of, of the other people. Everybody thinks their local people are pretty good, but all the other people are really bad. And I just went 6,000 miles across two countries and just found out most everybody's pretty good. That's awesome. 
building on top of all that, like for somebody who's thinking about planning their own trip, whether it's, you know, a, a day, a week, or like you, you know, two, two and a half months, what's one or two tips you'd give them as they're starting to piece it all together for themselves? Start getting your kit together and riding with it. That's twofold. One, you start getting your kit together and figuring out where to put things and what you truly need and don't need, but also getting used to the weight. I see a lot of people, you know, they're out riding the road bike or whatever, and then they're going to jump on this 50 pound bike packing rig and start knocking out big days. And they'll find out very quickly that that heavy bike is a completely different beast as far as handling and how do you get it through a bunch of down trees. And so just start riding your bike heavy and start short you know, go do a whatever 30 miles and do an overnight trip and it's 30 miles back the next day. You're going to learn a ton from that. Just having that experience and again, figuring out your kit and where you put things and how to just be efficient out there. And you'll probably figure out what you need and don't need pretty quick because you're going to, you know, you're going to make mistakes. That is, I guess, maybe one other takeaway from this whole trip is, is a constant set of failures over and over again. I mean, I did everything wrong. I have a bike that's untested. <laughs> I have a route that I know nothing about. But taking and learning over and over again from each one of those, I didn't expect as many new failures, but they happen. And you learn a ton from those. Just learn from them and don't do it again. Yeah. I guess be open to that too. Like be open yeah. to the lesson that it's teaching you and just don't let it be, beat you down emotionally and just to where you want to quit, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, how many times when you're out there where you're like, screw this, man, I'm done. I'm going home. <laughs> Maybe not every day, but close. <laughs> yeah. And especially through the, the first, say, month of it. It's just there was so many new, new challenges and new meaning like, you know, I'd figure out one challenge on, on Monday and then you get to Tuesday and it's a completely different challenge. And Wednesday is a whole nother challenge. And it's Sometimes it's the route doesn't go through. Sometimes my GPS isn't working right. Sometimes, you know, it's just an endless stream of new challenges. And so you finally open to, okay, let's go ride and see what happens today. Yeah. Well, that's a good attitude, man. I mean, that's what we should all do on every ride, right? Let's just go ride and see what happens. <laughs> exactly. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time. It was great catching up. Good to see you. I, I'm looking at you face to face. People on the podcast aren't going to get that pleasure, but yeah. Thanks, Eddie. Yeah, man. I appreciate your time. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.